There's no God. Community Bible Church is located at 638 Paris Island Gateway in Beaufort. Details at communitybiblechurch.us. WAGP Beaufort. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed dividing rightly the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So please, you can join us for the next hour. We'll be taking people's questions as they study God's word. Maybe there's a challenge you're facing or an issue in your life or ministry you'd like biblical counsel on. If we can help, just again, pick up the phone. The number once more is 843-525-1859. Or you can text us here directly into the studio at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started today. Indeed, Pastor. Um, a caller says that um, uh, we would, uh, let's see, a caller says that he is aware of some denominations that teach you're not filled with the Holy Spirit until you show evidence of his residing in you by speaking in tongues. What is the scripture that's used for this? And does uh, Pastor Brogy, do you believe that this is what scripture teaches? No, I don't believe that's what Scripture teaches. And if you look in the book of Acts, uh, that so-called example of someone being filled with the Spirit is not consistently demonstrated. Now, certainly in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of God came at Pentecost, uh, the people spoke in tongues. In fact, there are 15 different languages that are mentioned. And not only did they speak in a specific language, but he uses the word glossolalia plus the word dialectos. They spoke not only a language, but a particular dialect within a language. That was really a miracle. Uh, what we see today that people call the gift of tongues, number one, doesn't even come close to what we see in the word of God. Uh, they are not speaking any identifiable languages on the earth. In fact, what they are doing is really no different at all uh, from what other groups that don't even name the name of Christ do. Uh, the so-called ecstatic utterance that people have today go back to the first and second centuries before Christ and a number of different cultic groups that worship pagan gods. Now, someone would say in their defense, how they respond to the statement I just made, they would say, well, you know, Satan can counterfeit anything. And that's true. But it is clear that what we find in Scripture, and there's only one place in all the Bible where this specific nature of how the tongues were spoken is given, and that's in Acts 2, and it was a real verifiable language. Uh, there are other instances uh, in Acts 10 where you see, once again, the, the, the gift of tongues being given, but to an entirely different group. In Acts 2, it's all Jewish people. In Acts 10, it's all Gentile people. Why is that significant? Because you have an outward manifestation, a visible sign 
that Gentile people would be on the same level as Jewish people. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, God has removed the dividing wall between Jew and Greek, and he's made us one church. And so how would you know that? How would you know that a Gentile could have the same approval and level of acceptance as a Jew? Well, when today when someone's born again, you don't see the Holy Spirit come into them. Though as they begin to grow, certainly his life manifests himself. Uh, it becomes plain that they are born again. You will know them by their fruit. But on the other hand, um, in this day, you see an actual visible reminder. And that's what astounded uh, the, the, the Jewish elders in Jerusalem in Acts 11 when the report is given as to what happened with Cornelius and his house. Uh, they were amazed. What were they amazed about? That a, a Gentile could be saved? Of course not. Because clearly we know that uh, in the Old Testament, Jews were to be a light to the Gentiles. What was absolutely amazing was the fact that uh, indeed you could uh, be on the same level as a Jew was under the old covenant. So uh, yes, you know, uh, there was a time in the history of the church where tongues were very important, not just as an outward sign, but also uh, it was used as a means of communication. Remember, the Bible was not complete in the early church. They couldn't go to a particular passage or verse to find out what something meant. And so in order to um, find an answer sometimes to the problems and challenges they were facing is God's spirit would come upon someone and they would speak in a language that they had not previously learned. And that would blow people away. Anyone who knows me, for instance, knows that other than being able to say hello and thank you in Chinese, I don't know Chinese. And there are many dialects of Chinese. Uh, but if all of a sudden you heard me speaking perfect Mandarin Chinese, you'd say, wow, will you hear him? He's speaking perfect Chinese. He's never had the first lesson in it. Uh, that was the miracle. And then a, an additional miracle, someone could interpret it. But again, even then, God says that, you know, we are to test the spirits to see if they be of God. First John 4, uh, Ezekiel the prophet speaks of lying prophets and lying words. So we need even in that age to be sensitive. So the sign of being filled with the spirit is not speaking in tongues. In fact, if you want a real sign of whether or not you're filled with the spirit, it comes down to how you manage the tongue that is in your head. That's what James tells us. Oh, any of you are really mature, spiritual? Uh, let me tell you what it looks like. It's, it's how you manage the tongue that is in your head. Anyway, that is a great question. I appreciate it. If you really want to study that in detail, I have a handout that we do in our spiritual gifts course. And maybe someone listening to me is ambitious and they, they really want to do a full-blown study on the subject of spiritual gifts. Uh, you can call Search the Scriptures uh, at their toll-free number, 877-STS for Search the Scriptures, 7478, and say that you're interested in taking the spiritual gifts course. There's a spiritual gifts test that's online, but section six of that course, maybe you just would like to study that part of it. It's about 125 pages long, the whole course, detailed biblical study and what the Bible says on this subject. But section six deals with the sign gifts in the New Testament. And I walk through tongues really carefully and extensively and what it means, what it doesn't mean. And that would probably uh, lift a lot of the fog 
uh, out of your question and be really helpful to you. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And you can always email us at tbl at net. And uh, Pastor, we're so excited about this uh, week, aren't we? Yes, it is. We have our missions conference, uh, a lot going on. Tomorrow night, the uh, Kiev Ensemble and Choir, all the way from Kiev, Ukraine. They're touring the United States, uh, one of the premier singing groups of you know, across Europe. Uh, they're Christians. They're born again. Uh, they're going to be doing a concert tomorrow evening. Uh, there'll be, I don't know, how many missionaries do we have coming, Rick, approximately? We're anticipating over 100. Over 100 missionaries from around the world that are coming. Many have already uh, begun to arrive. I know we've got some coming from Africa and China and India and Ukraine and other places and American-based missionaries as well. Uh, you'll have a chance to meet them. You'll see their tables set up throughout the building. Uh, so that starts Wednesday night. There's a number of events uh, during the week that people can participate in. One keynote event, of course, is Friday night. Uh, Luis Palau will be with us. Uh, many of you know his name. You hear him uh, on our station from time to time. Even his son does some little short segments and ven- vignettes of one type of another. Uh, he's often been dubbed the Billy Graham of South America. Uh, for many, many years, whenever Dr. Graham preached in a Spanish-based uh, country, he was the translator. And, of course, he had his own ministry and continues to, Luis Palau Ministries, and he is Luis, Luis Palau Evangelistic Ministries. He's preached the gospel to over 30 million people. Uh, we're very, very privileged to have him preaching here Friday night. And if uh, you're listening today, you know, I often tell parents, you know, you've got teenagers or whatever and in a community, a man of God that the Lord has really blessed and put his hand on that, you know, is coming to your community. You should expose your children to them. Uh, and so this is an opportunity for Christians, wherever they are in Beaufort County or even in Savannah, to come and hear one of the great men that God has raised up in this century uh, to preach the gospel. So that's Friday night, seven o'clock. So a lot of things going on. If you go online, there is a very detailed uh, Missions Week schedule. Go to uh, communitybiblechurch.us slash missions, and uh, you'll get a complete listing there. Uh, Thursday morning, there's a women's prayer breakfast, and uh, Saturday morning, there's a men's prayer breakfast. Uh, uh, details are there online, but you do need to register for those so that they can get a, an accurate headcount. So I think today's probably going to be the last day to, to sign up for that. And then uh, Friday morning, there is a prayer time where you'll get to hear some of the missionaries. And then um, an amazing, amazing time Sunday. You've got a very special missions message. Yes. And yes. Uh, in each of the Adult Bible Fellowships, there will be missionaries speaking, talking about what uh, life is like out on the missions field, some of the challenges and some of the opportunities they have. You know, Rick, I, I was speaking with Luis Palau last week, and he said to me, you know, Pastor, it's kind of odd. He said, people don't do missions conferences anymore. And I said, you know, that's really sad. I said, it's because we've lost our evangelistic zeal in the United States. And really, you know, a country, a a church that is missions oriented will first be missions oriented on a local level. If people in the membership don't care about lost people, don't reach out to them, uh, don't try to win them, they won't be involved in world missions. There's always a correlation between the two. And so, 
you know, we were discussing that it's not by accident that that is the case in our day, that a lot of churches aren't engaged. Forget just a formal missions conference, that the principle is they're not formally engaged in missions for the simple reason that they're not doing missions, sharing the gospel on a local level. And, and some people need to be reinvigorated in that. Maybe I'm speaking to some pastor and you've lost your passion or you sense a lot of your leadership within the church. You should bring them Friday night because Luis Palau is going to speak to this very issue. And I think it will be of great encouragement. I All think right. we have someone waiting. So let's go to that phone call. Thank you so much for holding. You are on the Bible line. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, Carl, I've been going out of town to um, North Carolina several times a year lately, and I found a little church up there that I like, and the pastor seems very sound on the fundamentals. But I heard him recently say that he would like to reinstate the observance of the feasts in his church, and I wanted to hear your comment on that. Well, it's a good question. Uh, The feasts that God gave in the Old Testament— were really between him and his people, uh, the Jewish people, because they spoke of God's plan for Israel. And of course, a number of the feasts have already been fulfilled. And so we don't observe them in the church. If that's something that God wanted us to do today, then number one, you would expect to uh, see that being practiced in the early church and recorded in the Acts of the Apostles. And you would expect to see that commanded somewhere in the epistles that we should indeed celebrate those feasts. Paul says, yeah, let us celebrate the Passover because Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed for us. That's how he tells us to celebrate it. Not by going back to the Old Testament ritual and having a, you know, a Passover supper. So in the first coming of Christ, uh, four feasts were fulfilled and there are three that are yet to be fulfilled that will be fulfilled during the time of the great tribulation leading up to the second coming of Christ. So there were four feasts in the spring and three in the fall of the year. Uh, The spring feasts like Passover, Jesus died on Passover. That's not by accident. The feast of unleavened bread started the day he was buried and laid in the tomb. The um, feast of first fruits Uh, The day that he was raised from the dead was indeed fulfilled uh, on that Sunday morning, what we call Resurrection Sunday. And the feast of uh, weeks that culminated on the 50th day with Pentecost was fulfilled 50 days after the resurrection. So four of the seven feasts have already been fulfilled in the Messiah's work. The spring feasts are yet to be fulfilled the Day of Atonement, which the Jews, of course, it's their holiest day in their Jewish calendar. That's how they view it. That is going to be fulfilled. They are going in faith to look on him whom they have pierced. And they are going to believe that Jesus indeed is their Messiah. And they will, as a nation, as a whole, uh, actually trust him. Uh, The coming Feast of Trumpets is yet to be fulfilled. That's going to happen at the rapture of the church. Uh, The the Feast of of being in the wilderness of booths is also going to be fulfilled in the millennial reign of Christ. So there are still some fall feasts that are yet to be fulfilled, and we look forward to their fulfillment. But should we as believers today practice them? No. 
uh, there might be an opportunity for witness to Jewish people to explain the meanings, the meaning of each feast and how it was fulfilled in Jesus, at least the four that have been fulfilled. And of course, many, many, many Jewish people have been converted by simply studying the Old Testament feasts or some evangelical Christian, you know, stirring their thinking as to how they have been fulfilled in Jesus. And um, that's, that might be an evangelistic use. That's why Paul said, you know, I'm going to rush to get to Pentecost. Uh, He wanted to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. Uh, Why did he want to be there? Because he saw it as an evangelistic opportunity, all things to all men. But this is not something we practice in the church. These things are are shadows. The reality have come. And all you have to do is read the first couple chapters of the book of Colossians. And that's really clear that that's not something we do today. But that's an excellent question. And it still might be a good uh, opportunity for that pastor to teach the feast and their uh, spiritual significance. But to practice them, no. Uh, That would be going beyond the bounds of Scripture, beyond the model of the early church. And again, you know, general principle, uh, God tells us that if there's something we should do, it's going to be found in his word. Wouldn't you expect to see the early church uh, practicing all seven feasts? They, They don't. Wouldn't you expect to see the early church being commanded to practice these feasts in the epistles of the New Testament? No, they're not commanded. So I hope that answers your question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at wagp.net. Our next listener writes, I don't understand Matthew 9-1, which tells us Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. I thought he was from Nazareth, and I know that city's inland. What does this refer to? Let me just turn there real quickly. Um It says here, in getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Uh, He's actually not speaking of Nazareth. He's speaking of Capernaum. Uh, Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, let me find it here real quick. Here it is. Uh, If you remember, um, there's some commonality of events between the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke 4, Matthew 4, of course, is the temptation of Christ. Where Jesus is in the wilderness, he fasts and prays, and then, you know, he's tempted by the devil, and he comes out strengthened, and he begins, in a formal sense, his public ministry. Where does he go first? Well, Luke tells us he goes to Nazareth, and, of course, he's in the synagogue, and in the providence of God, the reading for that day is a text from Isaiah, and Jesus reads the passage, and he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your presence. And if you remember, the, the people come unglued because he, he's claiming to be Messiah. And so they take him to that famous spot that you can visit in Israel. And maybe you're interested in coming to Israel with me, God willing. We're planning to go in September of 2016. And we'll go to that very hilltop, to that very place, where they, that very precipice, where they led the Lord Jesus and wanted to throw him over that cliff. And then if you remember, it's just like power emanated from him. And he walked away. But Luke tells us uh, what Jesus says after that experience, that a prophet is not welcome in his own hometown. And so in Matthew, we read, now when he had heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, 
So he left Nazareth after that event. The event in its detail is recorded in Luke. He came and, and settled, excuse me, in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the re- region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Uh, if you remember the 12 tribes, their geography is specified very clearly by Moses, repeated by Joshua in terms of where each tribe would have their designated land by God. And so, as it turns out, this particular city, Capernaum, uh, fell in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. That's what's so cool when you go to Israel. Wherever you are in Israel, something happened biblically. It might just be that you're standing on a piece of geography where you know, well, this is where the tribe of Judah hung out. Or this is where the tribe of Benjamin was given land. But everywhere in Israel, something happened. So he comes to Capernaum and he settles there. So that becomes his home for his three years of public ministry. And of course, uh, in Matthew 8, he does all these miracles in Capernaum. And uh, then he, he leaves and he goes to the other side. Matthew eight twenty eight says to the region of the Gadarenes. And there's two demoniacs. Now, Luke and Mark mention one, probably because one was more vocal, maybe more extremely possessed than the other. But there were two. And of course, he exercises the demons. And when he's done, he gets back into the boat and he goes back to his home of Capernaum. Capernaum is where, you know, Peter's mother-in-law lived. You can see his mother-in-law's house, at least the... uh, the rock foundation that's left. And you see the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, There's a fourth century synagogue there, but the floor that Jesus stood on, you can go and stand on that floor and see where Jesus would have stood up and preached and taught and so forth. Uh, There are different levels of archaeological uh, spots and reliability. Some I'll call, you know, this is a class A spot, meaning it happened here. You're, you're, you're at the place. Uh, class B spot is maybe it happened here or it happened close around here. A class C spot is probably didn't happen here at all, but, you know, someone, some Roman Catholic church, some Orthodox church wanted a pilgrimage spot for someone to come and visit, so they chose this out of the blue. Uh, but there's no... Um, no real biblical evidence or even sometimes traditional evidence for it. Like, for instance, the place the Roman Catholics celebrate as Golgotha. Uh, Nice thought. Was it there? Absolutely not. We know it was not there. Why? Because it doesn't meet the biblical specifications for Golgotha. Jesus was crucified outside the wall. And so the Church of the Holy Sepulchre doesn't meet that qualification. But when you come to Capernaum, you're coming to some really class A spots. You're standing in the synagogue where Jesus preached. But the important thing to see is Capernaum is his home during his public ministry. That's headquarters, and the whole ministry takes place out of Capernaum. It's a good question. It's an observant question that you're asking. And those are the kinds of questions you should ask as you study God's Word, because you want to understand what's being said. 525-1859. You have to dial the area code 843 now. And if you want to get us toll-free, it's 877-924-7980. An email question from Tuscaloosa, Alabama asks, uh, I'm trying to merge the four gospel accounts of the crucifixion and resurrection into one document. 
I get a little confused about the timeline when I read John's account in, in comparison to Matthew's. In Matthew's account in chapter 28, the women come to the grave and the angel tells the women not to be afraid because the angel knows that they are looking for Jesus. The angel tells the ladies to go tell the disciples that Jesus had risen. And then, um, let's see, I lost my line here. <laughs> that uh, In John chapter 20, Mary comes to the grave on the first day of the week, and she leaves and runs to tell Peter and John that they stole the body. Now the listener writes, I'm confused why she told them that seeing how Matthew's account reads as though she was told Jesus had risen. Then later in John's chapter, it appears to me she's back at the tomb weeping again when she sees two angels. They, the angels, ask her why she is weeping, and she said, because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. I'm confused on the timeline, especially in John's account. Would you clarify this? Well, interestingly, I'll actually, for our missions conference, which if you've just tuned in, it's uh, this week starts Wednesday night with the Kiev Ensemble Inquire, uh, beginning at 6.30. Uh, keynote speaker, Luis Palau, Friday night, 7 p.m., all kinds of events. Go to communitybiblechurch.us, but on Sunday morning, I'll be doing a very special message with uh, over 100 missionaries of our 300-plus missionaries our church supports monthly uh, that are coming in from around the world and some from, of course, the states. They're headquartered here in the United States, and I'm going to be sharing a special message, not just with them, but with, uh, with our own church family because God has called all his Christian people to have a world message. So I'll actually be in a text of Scripture that where the resurrection uh, takes place on Resurrection Sunday. And I'll walk you through the chronology of this uh, to get it really clear in your mind. What you want to do is get all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and kind of put them side by side. Uh, there are some works that have been done over the years. Uh, they're called a harmony of the Gospel. Probably the best one ever done was by a gentleman named Dwight Pentecost. I mean, talk about a good Christian name, Dwight Pentecost. He was one of my professors at Dallas Seminary. He taught there until just about a year ago, until he was in his early 90s, and then he went home to be with the Lord. But uh, Harmony of the Gospels tries to put each uh, gospel account together and read it as one. Uh, that can be helpful in terms of piecing together chronology and events and uh, when they took place and uh, something that one gospel writer comments on that another doesn't. But just real quickly, uh, an angel rolls away the stone that Sunday morning. Uh, the women uh, come to the tomb, women plural, and they find him missing. Um, if you remember Mary Magdalene, then just... She left to tell Peter and John, the other women, they stayed um, at the tomb and spoke with two angels. Um, and of course, they were given instructions. Peter and John come, they visit the tomb. John records that. Luke records that. Mary Magdalene comes back and she is the very first person to see Jesus in his resurrection body. The very first one that Jesus ever appeared to was, was Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala. Um, Jesus then appeared to the other women, as Matthew indicates. Uh, the guards uh, were bribed that afternoon, uh, and it goes on from there. So, uh, but to answer the guts of your question, I just covered it in those events. Uh, you might want to listen to this coming Sunday's message 
And, of course, they're always posted by, what, 3 o'clock on Sunday generally? And what I would suggest you do is actually watch it rather than just listen to it. And because the advantage of watching it is when I refer to corollary scripture that supports the statement that I'm making, you're going to see it right on your computer screen. And I'll walk through a very detailed chronology of what will happen. It's essential I do it because of the passage I'm preaching on this Sunday. So anyway, uh, mm-hmm. but let's go on to the next question. Yeah, now we probably won't have the video up until Tuesday, but oh, the Tuesday, audio but audio the audio is up. up. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, a listener in Georgia writes, uh, I am uh, now former deacon at a Baptist church who is currently in transition between pastors. Recently, the pastor search committee had the church vote over allowing them to go forward with a divorced candidate. I spoke up vehemently, but the vote went in favor. This vote being a surprise to me caused me to prepare a speech to give to the PSC in private about why this was wrong biblically and in our church bylaws. Many of the members touched by divorce themselves told me I was too rigid and that I was not considered considering grace. One fellow deacon and PSC deacon called me a little Pharisee. I realized the sentiment for divorce ran deep and that they were unwilling to listen and resign my position. I had less than a month left, and God had been telling me to leave anyways. This was the fourth time in recent past the church embraced heretical liberal doctrine. What I do wonder is if it was a pharisaical approach to stand firm that husband of one wife meant only divorce. The other deacon said this never mentions marriage or divorce in Scripture and read John MacArthur's commentary. I responded that widows were formerly married and had some phrase used for them, but I wanted to be sure I didn't, so... uh, I suggest the passage into pharisaical territory. I know this is lengthy, but I felt the context was necessary. Thank you. Well, it's, it's a good question, and it's an important question. Uh, indeed, I think sometimes you can make a point by exaggerating it, and so you can sometimes stop and pause, and you're dealing with a, a PSC. I'm assuming that's uh, for a pastor search committee. In either case... You might ask, well, what kind of things would prohibit you from bringing on a pastor and create some examples? For instance, uh, pastor search committee, if you have a, a pastor and his wife coming and they have four teenagers and they're on drugs and, you know, have been arrested for car theft and other things, uh, would you say, well, we just need to show grace and let them uh, come because they love the Lord and are faithful to serve Christ as a couple. Well, not if you take the qualifications for an elder seriously, but most pastor, you know, one, the whole concept of a pastor search committee, I think it's just foolish unless it was made up of all the elders of the church. So what they do in a lot of churches today under the banner of the priesthood of the believer is they'll have someone from the youth on the pastor search committee, someone from WMU, somebody from the men's ministry, somebody from the Sunday school ministry and all these different people representing all the different flavors in the church. And, and they interview candidates and there are very often, these are people who are unqualified to discern what they should even be looking for in a pastor. And so this is important, you know, under the banner of the priesthood of the believer, that we're all believer priests, that doesn't mean that we all have the same responsibility. Uh, God gives authority to some people in the church, and it's the elders. And I know in some churches they have one elder, but the deacons serve as elders in practice. 
But in either case, it's the spiritual leadership in the church, mature men of God who are supposed to be discerning biblically, who make these kinds of decisions. You don't put it out there to the all these different groups and, oh, yeah, we like him. The youth really like Joe and Pastor Joe. We think he should be our pastor. And, and you know, that's just not how it should be done. Now, if your church is involved in the ultimate process of calling a pastor, the person they present should not be a pastor search committee. It should be godly men who, one, know what they're supposed to be looking for. You aim at nothing and you'll hit it every time. I would say to the pastor search committee, can you tell me where and what the 21 qualifications are in the New Testament to be an elder? Oh, I'm, I'm the, 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 you know, there's the problem. Therein lies the problem. So, for instance, the illustration I just gave, a man must have his children under control. And if his children aren't under control, he's not qualified to be a pastor. He must be a one-woman man. What does that mean? The husband of one wife. Well, in the history of the church, there have been different approaches to it. There's one that has dominated for over 1,900 years, but some have said, like our Roman Catholic friends, that since they teach the priest should not marry, uh, they teach, you know, that he should be celebrate, celibate his whole life, that um, he's married to the church. Well, that's, that's silly. That, that's, that's not what the text is teaching. Uh, then what do you do with the children? His children must be under control. They allegorize that and spiritualize that. And they say, well, you know, he has to show some leadership with people in the church. And, uh, as a deacon priest, uh, before we can officially ordain him into the priesthood to move him because a Roman Catholic goes from a deacon, that's the lowest level. And then he becomes a priest. Uh, he has to have demonstrated that he can manage people spiritually Well, certainly that's true, but that's not what the text is saying. Then you're allegorizing the scripture and you say, well, he's married to the church and his children are the people in the congregation. You make the Bible mean anything you want when you take an allegorical approach to the Bible, unless there is a a specific allegory that God calls an allegory. We should not allegorize the scripture. We are to take a, a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of the text that is presented before us. Some have said, well, this is a prohibition against a man being single, that if you're a single person, you can't be a pastor of the church. Well, that would certainly eliminate the Apostle Paul, and it would certainly eliminate who was an elder, a pastor. Not only was he an apostle, he was an elder. Understand in the Bible, all apostles are elders. That's why Peter in 1 Peter refers to himself as a fellow elder. Well, I thought he was an apostle. He was, but he was also a pastor. He was a fellow elder. And he described himself on that level when he writes 1 Peter chapter 5. And so all apostles are pastors or elders. And if you have to be married, then Paul would have been eliminated. And certainly the chief elder, the chief shepherd, the chief pastor, Christ himself would have been eliminated. So I know it doesn't mean that, but you would expect God to indeed describe the qualifications, among other things, in married terms. So if a man doesn't manage his own household well, how will he manage the household of God? Paul is saying if he can function well in a limited capacity in his own family, then don't expand the opportunity for him. 
if he can't manage his own house, his own family, what makes us think that he's going to be able to manage the household or the family of God? He can't. So you look to a man's family, and since God, as a general rule, calls most people to be married, Paul argues that being single your whole life is an exception to the norm, and that most people should be married unless God gave them uh, a gift to be single. It's not a spiritual gift. It's not something that God does through you, like with the spiritual gifts. Uh, Some call the gift of celibacy a spiritual gift. No, that's something more that God does to you as he did to the Apostle Paul. But generally speaking, most people should be married, and so you would expect the qualification. So I don't think this is a reference to uh, the Catholic interpretation. He's married to the church. I don't think it's a prohibition against a man being single. Some would say this is a prohibition against someone who lost their wife and they remarried. Um, uh, or, or before I get to that, let me let me go through a, a third interpretation. Some say that this is a prohibition against bigamy or polygamy. Bigamy is when you're married to two people. Polygamy is when you're married to three or more. And by the way, it would be entirely logical for this to be the next adoptive step for bigamists and polygamists in the United States to argue that it's their right to practice bigamy and polygamy in light of the Supreme Court's decision. That's where we're going next. Uh, It's going to come to the Supreme Court at some point, I promise you. And the logical thing for them to do will be to approve bigamy and polygamy lifestyles. In either case, this is not a prohibition against choosing a man who's a bigamist or a polygamist. Listen, if a man was a bigamist or a polygamist under the new covenant, he wouldn't even be considered a Christian. Now, David, you know, has uh, eight wives that are listed in the Bible, three by name, five, uh, well, actually, yeah, eight by name, three that we know, five that we don't know anything about in in others. Uh, And yet he is called a man after God's own heart. Yeah. Uh, Why? Well, because he's under the old covenant and under the hardness of a man's heart, God allowed certain things that under the new covenant, it wouldn't be allowed. In fact, the person wouldn't even be considered to be born again. If a guy today had two or three or four wives, he wouldn't be considered born again. And we wouldn't be questioning the church. Well, you know, since he's a bigamist or since he's a polygamist, we can't consider him for the office of elder or deacon. We wouldn't be asking that question if someone came and he started practicing bigamy or polygamy. We'd say he's a candidate for church discipline because of the new covenant. God takes the heart of stone and he turns it into a heart of flesh that's pliable so that we can walk in his statutes in a way that no Old Testament saint could ever know. And so clearly that's not the issue that's at hand. And that's what a lot of people are arguing today. That's probably the most popular interpretation amongst evangelicals who want divorced people serving in the office of elder or deacon. And by the way, that's the only prohibition we're talking about in the New Testament. A divorced person can serve in any capacity in the church except in the office of elder or deacon where the husband of one wife is given. Look, it wasn't even legal under Roman law, bigamy and polygamy. It was against the law just as it's been against the law in America. Though, like I say, I fear that that is going to change apart from divine intervention and a sweeping revival. 
Some have said that this is a prohibition against someone uh, being remarried. And so the husband of one wife has been basically taken to mean you've been married just once. And there are two positions within that. Some have said that if you were uh, widowed that you married again, that that would prohibit you from the office. I don't think so, because the reverse phrase is used in First Timothy 5, not the husband of one wife, a one woman man, but a one man woman. Uh, of a widow, where Paul actually encourages the widows to remarry. I don't think he's going to encourage them to do something that would later bring dishonor where they couldn't be recognized as special widows uh, that the church would would, uh, honor in a special way. No, most have taken it in the history of the church to be a prohibition against someone who has been married before and then remarried, not via death, where death broke the covenant, but divorce. Uh, why is it because God's down on divorced people? Of course not. God loves divorced people as much as anyone else. Uh, the problem is, is that God, because he hates divorce and he knows the heartache of divorce and anyone listening to me who's been down that road, they know how it stings. Some will often tell me it's easier to get over the death of a, uh, a loved one than it is to get over a divorce because it just doesn't seem to ever stop. Not to mention the damage that it does to children that Malachi also highlights. And so because of this, uh, because God wants to model the ideal in the church, uh, he puts a prohibition against us. So no, you weren't being pharisaical. Maybe you said it in a pharisaical way, and I don't know, because that doesn't come through in your email. You certainly could have, but I'm assuming the best here that you said it in a loving, compassionate way. But again, I would just ask the pastor search committee, well, do you even know what you're supposed to be looking for? Uh, what, what, if, uh, what if the guy that you're interviewing doesn't pay his bills on time? Would that disqualify him? I think it would. Why? Because he must have a good reputation with those who are on the outside. Um, so you need to ask these questions, but you don't know what to ask if you don't know what you're looking for. And you don't know what to look for if you don't go to the word of God. So to me, it just sounds sad Um, what has taken place in your church, but it's more the norm for the day because people are untaught in the scriptures. And I'm not saying these are evil people or they're, you know, they're just, there's just so much ignorance in the church today. It's pathetic. God's people don't know what the word of God says. And so they are like sheep without shepherds. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. If you have a question on the Bible line and we do have a live caller standing by, thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning to you, you guys. Um, I called last week about anger, and I took Pastor Brogy's advice. And in my war room, I have all the scriptures I can find on uh, written down uh, on anger, and I say them every time I go in there and pray. Now, and um, I'm very conscious, uh, very conscious on the road. If somebody does something really stupid, because you, you, you guys know that people do really stupid things driving, and they can make anybody mad. But I purposely have to um, just let them do what they're going to do. I have to be conscious of it. And I really am trying. And I, I know I'm going to overcome this because uh, that's what that's what the Holy Spirit does. He helps you overcome these things. So thank you all for that. My question was uh, this time about um, when the Pope was here. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so, um, I'm, I'm just not Catholic. And, uh, uh, you know, I listen to uh, bibliology that you teach um, have taught in the past, Pastor Brogy. I'm listening to that, 
uh, here and there, and I learned a lot from that. <clears throat> so I know I know a good bit about what Catholics believe in this and that. But the the Pope, when he was here, he made a comment. It was on MS, MSNBC, um, a video about uh, Jesus, humanly speaking, uh, his life ended in failure at the cross. That was what he said. You can look it up and, and see it. It's, it's, it's clear. But that was horrible to me. I absolutely was totally offended. And, I, you know, I guess I, I'm asking, do I have the right to be offended with somebody that's supposed to be so important? Although, in my opinion, there's only one Holy Father, and he's in heaven. And, you know, I, I interact with people on Facebook a lot, and sometimes, I, I, you know, I let them know how I feel about things. And this was one of the subjects that, that I, I did that on. And uh, I just need to know how far I, I have the right to take things. I really disagree with this guy. Um, I can't say that I have respect. I don't know that I should have any respect. I'm not quite sure. I really disagree with him a lot. He's very liberal, very liberal fella. But for him to say that anything, you can't say Jesus failed at anything. His his life, his death, and his resurrection was a success. If if everything he did wasn't a success, then we would all be lost. But I just want to know if you got some information for me to help me be a little wiser, maybe. Well, um, uh, I... I have a quote here before me. The translator who is rendering the pontiff's word says, we need to remember that we are followers of Jesus Christ and his life, humanly speaking, ended in failure. I was looking for the, um, the phrase ended in failure at the cross because I don't want to misrepresent him. Um, maybe, maybe that's uh, on another day, uh, but I, um, so I, I don't know for sure, but certainly uh, the Lord's, life uh, did not end in failure. Now, if he means humanly speaking, he ended in failure. Yeah, that's what some people might think if, if that's what he said. And again, I don't want to misrepresent him or, or um, you know, say he said something that he didn't say. Rick, if you can pull up a direct quote for me, that would be helpful uh, because sometimes people will say things that someone said and they didn't really say it. Um, and that's unfortunate, but I, I could see how someone could make the statement that from a human perspective, Christ's life ended in failure at the cross, because that's the way a lot of people look at the cross because they don't understand the meaning of the cross. And if, and if that's what he meant, then it would actually be an accurate statement that the unsaved people who don't understand that Jesus' death was substitutionary as a payment for sin, it looked like just a total disaster from a human perspective. From a divine perspective, of course, it was our means for salvation by which Jesus uh, purchased our salvation. So I, I don't want to comment on it because I don't have the actual transcript in front of me, and I don't like to say something about a person, but I did hear some of the Pope's stuff and his argument for, you know, our being unified, all the face of the world, that that's nonsense. Um, you have it there, Rick. Uh, highlight it for me so I can see what it is. He's, he, Rick has yeah, a... start it right here. Okay, it says, the cross shows us a different way of measuring success. Ours is to plant the seeds. God sees to the fruits of our labors. And if at times our efforts and works seem to fail and produce no fruit, we need to remember that we are followers of Jesus and his life, humanly speaking, ended in failure, the failure of the cross. That, that's not an inaccurate statement. 
he's basically saying that um, you don't measure success the way the world measures success. Our job is to do what God says and we leave the results to him. And if you are from a human perspective to measure the worth of Christ's life from a human perspective, you'd say it was a failure because they ruined him on a cross. But from a divine perspective, God had a different thing. Paul says it was according, uh, Peter says it was according to the preordained plan in foreknowledge of God. So I know some people will run wild with that, but I don't want to be unfair to him. But there are other things that he said that I would have a real problem with. Um, and I, I, I hear this ecumenicism that bleeds through, that denies the uniqueness of Christ, that we don't need to unite all the religions of the world together. The last uh, two popes ago, that was in one. That was the argument in a book that he wrote uh, that I have in my library. Uh, that look, Christianity is unique. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And I didn't hear him come out in a very pointed way. My, my biggest thing is what is the pope going to do in the coming weeks because they will regather and have another conference on human sexuality in Rome. What will actually happen? Uh, what position will he take on homosexual marriage? Of course, you know, people say, well, this is what he meant. Or uh, when he was there on the airplane, you can go online and watch the actual words that he gave um, where he, he basically says, look, if a man loves God and serves God and he's gay, who am I to judge? Well, what did he mean by that? Uh, what precisely does he mean by that? Is he going to open the door and say, well, you can live in a homosexual lifestyle and be okay? Where he says, well, this is marriage, but if you want to be gay, that's okay. You know, clearly it appears he's defining marriage, at least between a man and a woman and not two men and two women. But is he saying that homosexuality is a sin and it needs to be forgiven? And change. He hasn't come out yet on that. And so we will watch very closely to see precisely what is going to come down here in the weeks ahead because it will come up this fall. So um, it's a good question. I appreciate it. And I appreciate your encouragement that you're moving forward with the anger thing. I, there's a book. I don't know if I recommended it to you. I don't think I did, but it's one that I've given out for years. It's now out of print. It's called Anger is a Choice. And it's by Tim LaHaye. Tim LaHaye, most people know for his Left Behind series, but he actually wrote a few books early in the 70s and 80s, one on biblical infallibility and one called Anger is a Choice. It's actually very good. But if you go to half.com, which is the eBay side of used books, and you type in Anger is a Choice, you'll see Tim LaHaye's book. come. You probably buy it for 50 cents plus shipping. I think that would be a good read for you. I think that would really encourage you because you want to, again, know... Uh, how to put into shoe leather these biblical principles. Let's go to the next question. All right, 525-1859. If you have a question this morning, actually, I don't think we've got time, but for this last one from Varnville, this question is coming from a woman of God. Why is it that everyone I meet in friends or relationships that everyone wants what you have? In other words, they want to live off your blessing and tithing and prayers and age has nothing to do with it. Lately, I'm so cautious when it comes down to friends, not very many, because if you ask them out for lunch, okay, I'll go, but I don't have any money. Even on a date, I went out with a so-called Christian man. When the waiter brought the bill, he just looked at me like, what are you going to do? Okay, I work hard, and I want to be a virtuous woman of God, but when you sit down at the table and say, this is what I have to share or offer the other person, 
does not have anything to offer. So when I go out to dine, I go alone. When I travel, I go alone. What am I doing wrong? Help. Well, I, I don't want you to become disillusioned because certainly not all Christians are that way. But there are some Christians who are loafers and sponges and leeches. And there have always been Christians like that. Paul speaks to them in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 where he makes it very, very clear, if anyone, Second Thessalonians cha- uh, chapter 3, verse 10, and he says, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. And so he talks about those who are leading an undisciplined life, they're busy bodies, they're big talkers, but they need to get out and get a job and work hard and enjoy the fruit of their own labor. I'm not talking about someone who can't work, but I am speaking about one who won't work, or sometimes you're addressing an issue of someone who just hard times have fallen on them. All of a sudden they've lost their job and they're without any income And the church. The body of Christ needs to be sensitive and ask, what should we do? Of course, a lot of people, when they get into that spot because they don't understand the biblical principles of finance, they can't even begin to respond They don't have an emergency fund that we learn based on the principle of the ant in Proverbs 6, where in time of plenty, she stores up so that in time of need, she has something. Uh, That's a basic biblical principle that's ignored. And if you want to do an in-depth study, I have a course called The Theology of Money, where I walk through all these different principles. But sometimes as Christians, too, we can just because of we're have a warm heart towards God and we end up responding to every sympathetic story we hear when we shouldn't and we need to be more discerning. I remember a guy years ago ever before we had uh, we had a piece of property and he said to me uh, you know um, I need some money and I'm in kind of a tough spot and I'm just traveling through town and this guy, you know, blonde hair, great tan. I said, you got a real tan there, buddy. What do you do? He said, oh, I love to surf. And I said, oh, great. I said, well, where do you work? Well, you know, I just kind of go from town to town. I said, look, I'll tell you what. I'll help you out here. Take this plastic black trash bag. And I said, go out here. If you just fill that up with pine cones. I said, because they mess up the lawnmower, the guy who cuts the lawn here. I said, just fill it up with pine cones. And I said, and, I, and I'll give you a, a food voucher and you can go here to the local uh, grocery store where we have a, a, an agreement with that store. You won't be able to buy alcohol or cigarettes with it. And this was before we had our food pantry ministry. And that, by the way, we service some 500 families a month to people who are in need. Um, he said, I, I can't do that. I said, what's the matter? He said, I got a bad back. I said, pine cones don't weigh much. I said, once you get out there, he said, Jesus said, he said to me, that whoever asks you should give. I said, well, he said that. I said, but let me also tell you what Paul says. And he speaks with the same authority. If a man will not work, neither should he eat. So, dear sister, be more discerning. Maybe you're in uh, a weak church, too, where the people are untaught. You need to get in a stronger church where you're going to find some godly people uh and maybe you need to go to some godly singles conferences cbmw has one 